Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Take your Bibles tonight. We're going to start a series as the new year begins, just in the book of James, a kind of expository series Kind of taking it verse by verse, and we'll go through the book of James. Very practical book. As you study the Bible, you will note that certain authors have different personalities and different themes that they highlight, of course, all by the inspiration of God. But you study, uh, if you read the book of uh, the books written by the epistles written by Paul, you will notice that faith seems to be what he uh, emphasized. And then Peter, Peter was hope. John stressed love. Jude, focuses on holiness or purity, and James highlights Christian conduct. And so we're going to entitle this series as we study it in the evening service, simply faith with its boots on. <laughs> faith with its boots on. Work, a faith without works is what? Dead. Famous verse found in chapter 2, and certainly James is refreshingly practical. He wants us Dear, dearly beloved, he wants us to practice what we preach, and that's good. Has your wife uh, ever told you that? Honey, practice what you preach. Well, it happens in my home a little bit. So the, the book really is full of practical religion in the context of real life, socially, ethically, politically, practically. Don't just tell me you're saved, act like it. Sometimes that's the hardest thing. Martin Luther read this book and many times, of course, in his ministry days, and he had a comment about it. He said, uh, I have problems with the book of James. He counted it a right, strawy epistle. In other words, he thought it was light in doctrine, and so he called it kind of strawy. But listen, it's got tremendous, regardless of what Martin Luther said, it's got tremendous theological weight. It forces us to practice what we preach to live what we believe. It's a challenge to all of us to take our faith and lace it in our boots and walk in the Spirit throughout life, at work, at church, home, faith with its boots on. It's a convicting book to me, and I know it will be to all of us as we work our way through it, especially the start of the year. If our faith, I hope you understand this, if our faith stays only in our heads, and never makes it to our boots, the way we live and walk, then it's dead. And this serves as a reminder to all of us who have grown up in church, Christian homes, that if if all we've got is doctrine right, and there's no sign of life in us, it ain't enough, excuse the English, it ain't enough to get us to heaven. It just isn't. Dead faith won't get us to heaven. You know, anytime you buy a product, this is all by way of introduction, anytime you, you buy a product, you ask a question, not how good does it look, but does it work? <laughs> Ever bought something that looked pretty good, but it didn't work very well? And the Christian faith ought to work well. Adrian Rogers, which isn't who wasn't a brother to Aaron, by the way, in case you're wondering, Adrian Rogers, famous preacher, Southern Baptist, used to say this, if your faith doesn't drive you to faithfulness. 
isn't changing your response to sin, brings no joy to your soul, no difference to your home life, has no fruit at all. He says, I wouldn't give you a half of a hallelujah for your chances to get to heaven. (laughs) I love the quotable Rogers. I wouldn't give you a half of a hallelujah for your hope for heaven. Wow. So, tell me, how practical is your faith? James has a way of saying that too in his book. If you can hold up a mirror of truth to your life and walk away from it and not be ever changed. Now listen, we have wonderful exposures to truth here. Sunday school classes and and every week and we have wonderful teachers and we're thankful for them. And if we can hold up the mirror of truth, look into it and walk away unchanged, then what we have will not get us to heaven. I am reminded the story of a sailor who brought his girlfriend to the local minister. He was in a haste. It was Friday evening, and he asked to be married that very moment, on the spot. The pastor said, do you have a marriage license? The boy said, no. Have you had any counsel? No. Do you have the blessing of your parents? No. Well, he said, I cannot perform a marriage without a license and proper planning. Well, the boy's face took on a pleading look. And he leaned over to the preacher and said, couldn't you just say a few words to get us through the weekend? And we have some Christians so-called that just come to church for that. Could you just say us some good words to get us through the weekend? And then by Monday morning, we'll live like we want to. We'll come back for a little moral challenge on the weekend. And then through the week, it's our own life. Uh, We don't realize sometimes that the gospel is much more than something, a prayer we prayed, or uh, somewhere at the front of some youth rally or some church service, or maybe at home, and we signed a card, joined a church, we realize, we've got to realize that that in itself is no assurance that we will ever wind up at the wonderful courts of heaven someday. We have to live. There has to be signs of life in us. There is something radically changing about the gospel. It ought to change our lives and the way we live and respond. And, and I hope you're growing. I hope maybe you say, I can't see it in myself, but I hope those around you can tell that you're a growing Christian. And, and, and is there somebody that could give evidence? Yes, I believe that not only back yonder I signed a card, but I, I believe that just by looking at my life and seeing the way I've grown, that God is working. There's a conviction in my heart. There's the way I respond to people. I'm not perfect. I'm growing. I'm a work in progress, but I can tell, praise God, there's a change. God is changing me. And so it's a radical change. The great thing about James is that he says you can't look at truth and and still do nothing about it and claim to be spiritually alive. You've got to put your boots on. You can't go to heaven with a wing and a prayer, a wink and a nod, or some holy water sprinkled on you. I used to uh, take a break when I was working in construction years ago, and I worked with a man by the name of Roger. Roger was much older than me at the time, probably still is, and Roger, uh, he loved to eat eat lunch with me and take breaks with me because he kind of had an affinity for religious people. And we were, now, I got to tell you something about Roger. <laughs> Roger uh, was the quintessential, what you think of a construction guy, he had foul language, he was profligate in his ways, he smoked and drank and all this kind of, and I know these are external things, but they were evidences. And 
One day he said, he said, Lauren, he says, I, I want you to know that I believe in God as strongly as you do. He says, I just practice a little differently than you do. And I scratched my eyebrow a little bit. I thought, man, Roger, I didn't say this, but Roger, there's no, <laughs> I don't, he, he didn't go to church. He, he, he just, there's no signs of spiritual life in him at all. And so we can't trust something uh, in the netherworld that we, some, some doctrinal truth that we've kind of uh, uh, lined up with, if there's no true work. Faith without works is dead. Certainly, certainly, certainly. But we know that works do not. Are we, are we in agreement about that? Works do not save us. But they, they tend to be the validation or the evidence that there is a God in us who is at work. The profile of James, by way of introduction, is this. James was not one of the disciples. That's a good trivia question. He was not, but he was an apostle. He grew up around Christ. He's a half-brother of Jesus. There are four different Jameses in the Bible. They're mentioned in the New Testament, at least, in the New Testament. And uh, he is the author of this book. Uh, again, the half-brother of Christ. His name in Hebrew, interesting, his name in Hebrew is Yaakov, Jacob. Some believe that the translators of the, uh, the authorized King James Version just changed his name to James in deference to the king at the time who was King James, and so, but his real name was Jacob. So this is the book of the general epistle of Jacob. How about that? So uh, his brothers, uh, and he grew up in the family with the Lord Jesus Christ, but interestingly enough, James did not come to know the Lord until after the Lord was raised again from the dead. Can you imagine that? Growing up in the home with Christ, but he did not receive Christ until after the resurrection, really trust him as the Messiah and God of gods and very God. And so we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to James, then to all the other apostles. James became the pastor of the church where? Anybody know? Church at Jerusalem. He became the head pastor there. He was fluent, although he grew up in Nazareth, not known for its education. James became fluent in Latin, excuse me, Greek and Aramaic, Hebrew, of course. We had somebody here this morning that spoke four languages. James at least spoke three. He was a great, um, a great thinker. And there are many similarities between the book of James and the speech that was given by Pastor James in Acts chapter 15. Many evidences of this book being authored by James. It's um, written in Koine Greek. And James loves to include in this short this short book, five chapters, he loves to include references to nature. That's one of his, his um, kind of his earmarks. The wave of the sea, chapter one. Sun with a burning or scorching heat, chapter one. Flower of the grass, a shadow of turning, bits and horses, mouths, ships driven by wind, chapter three. Great fire set up, set, kindled by a small spark, deadly poison, chapter three. Fountain or springs of fountain, fig tree, verse chapter 3, vapor your life, moths, uh, chapter 5, reapers or harvesters, chapter 5, and then rain again, chapter 5. So he often refers to nature. Why is that? Well, perhaps because James grew up in that economy, in that area, agriculture not far from the Sea of Galilee, in the home where Christ grew up as well. He wrote this letter, 
And we'll see that as we begin reading as a cyclical letter to whom? He wrote it to mainly a Hebrew audience. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, which means certainly the Jewish folks, which are Hebrews, which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, how come it is, why is it that the, the tribes are scattered abroad? What happened in the first century church? What's been happening ever since, right? The, the Roman persecution became very intense, as well as the religious uh, crowd there in the, the, the Sanhedrin and all those, the Pharisees, Sadducees and such, they became truly uh, adversarial to the cause of the way, the Christian way, and they were scattering by persecution uh, the 12 tribes, certainly just a, a name for the Hebrews. And so they, he's writing this letter not only to those who are, are on the move inside of Palestine, but outside the borders as well. There's a growing number of refugees when, uh, when uh, James is writing this uh, who are being persecuted. And he's possibly directing his thoughts in this particular book to the scattered tribes, really to the, uh, more to the, the east, in the area of Babylon uh, and Mesopotamia, where Peter's letters are widely directed to those in the northwest. But this has a decided a Jewish flavor. He talks about first fruits and Abraham and, and, the, and the spring and the fall rains and the synagogue of the assembly, chapter 2. He speaks of the synagogue or the assembly. So let's jump in and begin reading and as we set the context, hopefully tonight, as we just get started, these thoughts about uh, practical Christian living will be a blessing to you. James chapter 1, beginning again in verse 1, a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, scattered abroad greeting. My brethren, he's speaking again to the believers mainly, count it all joy. Some of you have memorized the whole book of James, good for you. This ought to be familiar territory. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, nothing to do with the sea, to different manifold various temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfecting work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you, and I guess every one of us ought to have our hand up here, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, they give it to all men liberally, braideth not, doesn't chide or scold us, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, for he that wavereth or doubteth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man, there's an emphatic phrase there, don't, if, if you're that person, don't think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double man, a two-souled man, is unstable in all of his ways. First of all, he says this. He says, count it all joy. When what? When you receive a check <laughs> in the mail from the government. That happens once in a great while. Count it all joy when you're surrounded what? With trials. Count it all joy. Now, it's interesting, that little qualifier. Count it not some joy, but count it all joy, full joy, complete joy, when you fall into manifold temptations, many trials of various kinds. How is it that we are to find joy in that? I won't ask you to raise your hand tonight. But probably you're, in, you're coming into a trial 
or you're in the middle of one, or you're just coming out of one. God has designed it that way, that there's always some challenge, some test, or some trial in our lives. And so we are to count it all joy when we fall into these trials. How and why is that to be? Um, the Lord has always uh, done this with His people. Can you remember when Joshua and Moses passed off the scene, the book of Judges, a kind of 400 years of failure? It starts out in chapter 1. I was reading this week in Judges chapter 1, and I, I realized that God on purpose, God on purpose left some enemy nations within the borders and the surrounding areas of, uh, of Israel. Why? The Bible says that, that, that God would prove His people's hearts in obedience by leaving these nations there. He wanted the challenge to remain. He wanted the test to... What test is God bringing to you lately? And how are you responding to it? And so... Here we see, be, be, be aware that these trials and these temptations, these not temptations as in a temptation to do evil, God doesn't tempt us with evil, but these are trials and tests in our lives that might really validate the truth of our faith. And so it is, in our lives these tests are diverse and come to all Christians regardless of your age and your place or station. Pastors have tests, you have tests. All of us do. Our little Asa, who is coming back tomorrow for a visit for a week at our house, and, we, uh, and I bring that up many times already. We're excited about that. But little Asa, and I want to qualify what kind of tests we're having. These are not tests that are brought upon us by our disobedience. Rather, these are tests that God sends to us uh, in order to test our faithfulness. Uh, little Asa has just grown a crop of hair. It's his first batch. And so he's enjoying pulling his own hair. And his mother doesn't like that, as a mother wouldn't appreciate that. And so they stopped in for just a few hours, an evening, and, and he started doing that at the dinner table. And Whitney, and it's fun for us to watch our kids raise their kids. It's just wonderful. <laughs> We finally just get, we get a break here. It's your turn. And, and so she reaches over while he's trying to grab at his own hair, and she slaps his hand. And, of course, I've forgotten how the emotion can change on the face of these little babies from joy to complete. And they start wailing, just like just that little slap. And his little heart was bruised, and, and the little discipline was good for him. And he just starts howling. And finally he gets over it, and then I see that the conversation begins, and, and he, looks, I never, I can't, he looks over at his mother, and I'm watching him. Mama's, you know, she's looking at other things. And, and he goes up for his hair again the second time, and he looks at her at the side. <laughs> he just looks at her as he's trying to grab, and then he decides, no, I better, because his hand is still red <laughs> from the time he gets smacked. And so he looks at her, and he goes, okay, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, God is not saying, count it all joy when you go off on a tangent, rob a bank, and end up in jail, and you jump up and down. No. 
that is the consequence of your disobedience and it's your rightful uh, it's your rightful reward for disobedience. That is not what he's... Here are Christians that are trying to live for the Lord and they're scattered throughout. They're being chased and executed and persecuted for their faith. And he's saying, put a smile on your face because just as they persecuted the prophets and me, they will persecute you. And again, as we spoke this morning, it will advance the cause of Christ. It will push the gospel further out, and it will be good for you as well. And so you are to count this. It's, a, it's really a reckoning term. Count it all joy. So let trials, first of all tonight, a principle, let trials induce joy. Secondly, trials uh, increase our endurance. Look at verses 3 and 4. Knowing this. Why are we to <laughs> why are we to be joyful in all these manifold tests? Well, we we know that Job, for all those long chapters in Job, never got a just a straight answer from God about why all these trials came his way. He was just finally cast upon the sovereignty of God. Job, God knows. And it is enough. But here we have some answers, knowing this. Be assured of this, dear brethren in Christ, that the trying of your faith is working patience. This is a word for steadfastness or your staying power. I'm always convicted and challenged by this thought, that while God knows the genuineness and depth of our faith. God knows it. He's all-knowing. Trials and tests are God's gift to us to expose and deepen and strengthen and mature our walk with God. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. Why? For they were not of us. It would be interesting tonight to go up and down the rows and, and just ask you, what test are you going through now? And to what extent are you arguing with God? To what extent are you fighting God? Uh, to what extent are you patiently, steadfastly, faithfully remaining under and trusting the sovereignty of God? Do you know your steadfastness in trial, even though you don't have all the answers, is a mark of your genuine faith? There are so many that come and go, and at the first sign of hardship are gone. And churches have become an, uh, just interesting commentary on the modern church. Um, one pastor put it this way, in the 1960s, you can tell he's a little older, we came to church to have a preacher without a lot of musical background, um, or power teams, or any other kind of teams on stage and lights. He said in the 60s and in the early 70s, we came to church to hear a preacher open the Word of God and preach it, and sometimes more than two or three times a week. Uh, there was prayer meetings held before church, sometimes afterglows. There was, and it was a central... We came, and our expectation was to have a man stand on his hind legs and preach the Word of God to us with conviction and with power. And we went home uh, thanking God for the word as it was explained to us. And now 
the expectation in churches is if they don't entertain me and if there isn't something for every kid that I have and if there are programs to scratch every itch that I, if it isn't kind of like a mini mall that will dazzle me, I'm going to go find somewhere else to be entertained. And here's this injunction that we are to understand that we are to come to God and expect Him to have a, a, a perfecting work in us that causes us to be steadfast and faithful. There's a huge departure from gospel-preaching churches. Now, they're looking for all kinds of shows, and I've said that before, but there's a staying power to people that are just loving God. When I come to church, I want to hear from God, from His Word. Explain it to me. Teach it to me. Preach it to me. And I'll be, my soul will be fed. There's a steadfastness, a staying power. And I'm always convicted about what it takes to draw me away. You see, it wasn't so much what, it, what conviction brought me to sign a card somewhere that I accepted Christ. It is the conviction at the end of my life, however long or short it is, that I've been steadfast. Uh, and he's the one that keeps me. I understand that. But I, I am convinced and assured by my own conviction, my own staying power. Job said it this way, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if I don't get the job, or if, even if I don't get the check in the mail, even if I, circumstances don't come my way, don't let pain push you away from God. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Let's add one more concept here to the two opening admonitions. First of all, be joyful, don't let or let trials induce joy in you. And then be steadfast, patient. Let trials increase your grasp on steadfastness. And then be bold. Or excuse me, be wise. Or you could say be bold. Let no one get scolded for coming to Christ for help and for answers and for wisdom. Look at verse 5. We didn't finish verse 4. Be be patient, be steadfast, and let, have, let patience have its perfecting work in you, that ye may be perfect and entire. Mature is the word wanting, complete, needing nothing, satisfied only in Christ. And if any of you lack wisdom, verse 5, let him ask of God. The Greek construct there is you ask and you keep on asking. He gives to all men liberally, generously. And upbraideth, as I mentioned earlier, doesn't scold you. He invites you to come and doesn't slap your hand for coming. And it shall be given to him. Are you lacking tonight? The verse starts, if any man lacks, lacks wisdom. My hand shot up when I was reading, <laughs> studying this. Stuff. Lord, that's me. I need wisdom for how to live as a husband, how to live as a father, how to direct church. Lord, I need wisdom and I, and I need it in my life. Are you that way? Or do you just have it all figured out and you run to God every once in a while just to help you through a crisis? If any, I need wisdom every day. So do you. If any man lack wisdom, who doesn't need it? We all do for relationships, for knowing the will of God, for decisions, for direction, raising kids, discipline, for leading and responding. The persecution and context here was, what am I to do? Am I supposed to, I can hear these conversations that the Hebrews were having as they were being scattered 
Honey, if I, if I boldly profess Christ to, to him down the street or to them, they're going to take me away and they're going to persecute me. I may lose my life. Many of my friends have lost their lives for just claiming to know Christ as their Savior and that claiming that Christ is the Messiah. We believe that. Honey, if I do that, you may be left alone. I'll be imprisoned or killed. What's going to happen to you and the kids? Uh, what, what's going to go? And these were real discussions they were having. If any man lack wisdom, let him come to God. And we know that, that the Lord is the source of wisdom. Let me ask you a question about this. So many of, of us need wisdom. We all do. And we have folks here that are younger that are asking for wisdom about spouses and, and about jobs and where to go, where to live. And perhaps you're asking God right now specifically for wisdom in a certain area of your life. What do you do? Where do you start? James is good to us by saying, if any of you lack wisdom, you need to go first to God. Proverbs 1.7 says what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, it's a great thing to have a cell phone. It's a great thing to be living in the internet age where you can Google anything. It's helpful in many regards. But I wonder if, I wonder if we have have neglected the discipline of the calloused knee. Where before we do the internet search or before we pick up the phone or before we Instagram somebody or Facebook, before we do that with a question, James is telling us as a believer, fall on your knees and seek God for wisdom. Stay there. Open his book, read it before you Google a quick answer or call a friend. Just come to God. If any man lack wisdom, God is there. Let him ask of God. Ask and keep on asking. And the illustration, the word picture here is of a banker. And it's a, there's a negative side to that. God isn't like the banker who, who opens kind of his, like, like Ebenezer Scrooge that opens the door, invites you in, and, and, and offers you a loan with some kind of high interest rate. And then when you're done, he slaps you on the hand and says, now you better pay that back or it's going to cost you your life. God isn't that way. When you come to him, and you fall down on your knees before Him, God will open, open the windows of heaven in the sense of wisdom and in the sense of all resource that's needed. And God will supply without scolding you for coming. He is not like that stingy banker. God, verse 5, gives not by minute degree, by thimbleful, but generously and without reproach. It's the opposite of someone who is scolding you for asking for help. God is generous, loves to lead you in wisdom. Who should I marry? Where should I live? Where should I go? Go to college. Stay home. Work here. Work there. Spend money or save it. Uh, where should I worship? So we come to the Lord first. And listen, this is a great time of the year to develop that habit of prayer. Lord, I need, I need you. We sang about it. 
Lord, I need you. Let him ask in faith, verse 6, nothing wavering. What does that mean? Well, I think the idea there in chapter 1, verse 6, is you have to come with a, number one, a faithful lifestyle. You can't come in kind of like a drunken, I've already mentioned a sailor once, we won't pick on sailors, like a, like a drunk who staggers into the presence of the Lord. You haven't been living a life of faithfulness, and you ask God to do great things for you, and the Lord says, well, wait a minute. Let him ask in faith. That's part of the idea. The other part is that we are to understand that God is faithful. And we are to come without that. The idea there is without a doubt in our hearts. This was a challenge to me. We tend to pray prayers that are pretty general, right? Even I catch myself in church praying that way. Lord, bless us. Bless the missionaries. But here's the idea. You came to God asking Him for wisdom specifically. And God who gives generously gave you wisdom and showed you his will he doesn't hide his will he he discloses it to us and you have God's will in mind about a certain area of your life and so you come to him with this prayer request that is specific that is pointed and you keep coming to him you assail in a sense God himself with this request that came from him you ask for wisdom about this area of your life and God gave it to you and you come back to him and say, Lord, now you fulfill, you supply the need. I have no doubt that this is what you want for me. So Lord, in your time, in your way, and in your wisdom, would you please supply this specific need? Do you have any specific things that you're praying about? Because if you don't, how do you know God is at work? Lord, bless our missionaries. At the end of the year, did God bless them? I think so. Lord, bless my life at the end of the year. Did God bless you? I think so. But I wonder how many of you are praying specifically for something that God has burdened you for. It came out of your time on your knees where you begged God, Lord, give me wisdom. There is a brother-in-law that needs to get saved. And his name is this. And his attitude is this. And Lord, you're greater than this. So please work specifically in this regard. Or I need this amount of money to pay that bill. We haven't been foolish with our money, but Lord, it's the George Mueller, the specific praying where you could talk to George Mueller and he would say, yes, here, and this day, and that day, and this way, and in this regard, God has blessed us. I challenge all of us to come to him, not doubting, not vacillating, and come with a lifestyle that's faithful, bow down before the king of kings. Man, if you have an appointment with the king of kings and he's going to take you to his treasurer, and you're going, to have an ask, you're going to ask him for something, you better at least have some figure in mind. And I'm not saying like the health, wealth and prosperity preachers, you don't just pray down. No, I'm not saying that. But bring your needs to the Lord specifically. And come in great faith of a faithful God. The answer depends on your assurance that he will supply your needs. Praying dubious prayers, doubtful prayers, out of the will of God, we can't do that. The Bible says that and expect God to answer. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. The picture there, 
I'm sure the Sea of Galilee had moments like this. The white caps that were just blowing hither and yon. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Here, there, God, you're, there's no consistency in your life. But if you have an inside, I call it an inside track with the Lord. We had a man like that in our first church when Claude Stage prayed. The whole church got silent because we knew that he knew God. And when he prayed, there was a holy hush because we knew that we were, we were entering in, spectators in a sense, but entering into his sweet communion with God himself. And nothing mattered more to us than the sweet music, the incense and fragrance of prayers that ascended. And God answered. So let the invitation, you come, keep, keep on asking. I'm not going to slap your hand. You come in faith. Bring your prayer small and large. With great faith, come before a king who can supply and will supply every need. And you just pray without doubt and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and do more than you could ever ask or think. Our prayers too often are general and not specific. What prayers are you praying with wisdom and confidence and assurance in God? For God says, pray, pray without doubt, surely I will answer. So be joyful, God's tests are by His design. Be steadfast, trials expose our faith. Be wise, God never scolds the true seeker. And be sure the answer from God is based, again, on your assurance and His ability, not your own, and in the assurance that you're asking prayers according to His will. One of the most, perhaps the saddest, one of the saddest verses in the Bible is found in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5 concerning His own hometown there in Nazareth. Here's what the Bible says. And He could do no mighty work. God could do no mighty work. He had the ability, certainly, save uh, that he laid his hands on a few sick folks and healed them. How tragic, dear friend, to live your life, however many years God gives you, and see God only do a few small things. Bible Baptist, let's pray in the will of God. Let's pray for mighty things. Let's pray that He would bless us according to our faithfulness and uh, according to His own will, out of His great treasury. And may we be faithful to keep asking Him without doubt to do great things for us. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.